0: basic income podcast i'm owen poindexter and i'm jim pew and this week we are very lucky to have annie lowry annie is a writer for new york magazine and recently she came out with an article called the future of not working for the new york times magazine uh focused on the village in kenya that give directly is piloting an experiment on to further develop their uh, basic income experiments in africa welcome annie
1: Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, And yeah, big, big job news. So I actually just jumped ships and joined the Atlantic.
0: Oh, okay. That's exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, excited to be working because I live in D.C. and their office is actually here, which is really nice, too.
0: Nice. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations.
1: Uh, Thanks. Um,
0: So um, why don't you get started by telling us about what originally got you interested in the basic income?
1: So I don't remember exactly when I first heard about it, but I was a labor market reporter for the New York Times for a long time. And it had kind of just been one of these ideas that would occasionally sort of like simmer up on the left uh, that you would hear about. Usually it's kind of like a pie in the sky sort of uh, way of of kind of repairing Um the labor market. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it just started showing up everywhere. So it must have been like five or six years ago, I think that I first heard about it. Um, although I can't remember the exact genesis.
2: And can you tell us a bit about what made the idea interesting to you? What I, I know when a lot of people, myself included, first heard about basic income, it kind of seemed a little bit crazy. Like, how could giving people money actually make sense? Do you recall at all what about the idea first resonated
1: Yeah, I mean, so one thing that I think is really interesting about basic income is that it's sort of like a cipher for what people care about. Like there's a social justice argument for it. There's probably an argument about racial supremacy um, and repairing some of the innate racism uh, in the U S welfare system. There's like a cash efficacy argument. There's like a robots taking all of our jobs argument. And I think that was what struck me as interesting. And I'm still kind of like actually on the fence, the degree to which I think all of these arguments kind of knit together. I know that some people are like, Oh, this is just like a perfect, you know, like the perfect hammer, that bashes all nails. And I don't really think that that's true. But I think that it's it's like the most fascinating thing about basic income is that it sort of serves uh, to let you look at all of these different problems in all of these different contexts and all of these different countries around the globe. It's really very few things I think that I've encountered ideas that sort of do that. Um, You know, it's kind of radical in that way. Um, and yeah, I think I thought it was kind of crazy when I first heard about it, especially since, you know, I was writing a lot about poverty in America and I don't know that it is necessarily the best or even a necessary thing, uh, to solve poverty in America, right? Like there's probably a lot easier ways to do it and, um, ways that would take up less of GDP and would be less like radical, um, But that was that was originally what kind of attracted it to me was, you know, we have these like three million people that aren't receiving any cash benefits that are extremely poor in the United States. Um, And this does, you know, by providing some sort of way to uh, get benefits without any kind of conditionality, help that population, which is generally really overlooked in Washington.
0: So uh, as someone who's written about poverty, do you remember when the basic income became a, a conversation topic in that space?
1: So I think it was definitely sometime after, I mean, so it's been around for a really long time, as you guys know and have talked about, um, but it was definitely after the recession, right? Like, you know, in, in the wake of the recession, it was all just about like government stimulus and sort of just like steadying the tides and repairing the financial system. And I think it's only been um, since we've had this kind of lackluster recovery that really only recently has started getting good for people at the lower end of the income spectrum who are, like, nevertheless far behind where you would expect them to be just given uh, corporate profits, GDP growth, you know, growth in the incomes of people in the 1%, all of that stuff, right? Like, they're still falling behind and... And so I think it's been in the last few years. And and I also think that the kind of like Trump populist sentiment has actually in some ways expanded the scope of the possible. Like people are really, you know, feel a pretty deep dissatisfaction, even if all of these headline numbers look pretty good. And I think that basic income actually speaks to that. Um, And so, you know, I know that some people feel like Trump implies that the country is back on a sort of like right wing pendulum swing. And, you know, certainly right now they're talking in Washington about like cutting the safety net really, really sharply. Um, But I do think that there's also a way in which Trump is just kind of weird and sort of unusual policies and the scope of the possible feels a lot bigger than it did. Um, I think, uh, you know, when it looked like it might be, you know, Hillary versus Ted Cruz, for instance.
2: So. You wrote this article just a few weeks back describing one of the villages that's involved in GiveDirectly's experiment in Kenya. Can you tell us what that village was like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is a village not too far from uh, the Obama family's ancestral home. It's in western Kenya, pretty close to Lake Victoria. And um, this is a part of the world that, uh, you know, just... Everywhere out there, all of these villages are really poor. Um, that said, it's it's relatively safe. There is some kind of like post-election type violence, but it hasn't had the problems with terrorism that parts of eastern Kenya have had. And in a lot of ways, this kind of rural poverty felt to me um, less startling than urban poverty these people in in some cases are just sort of living a little bit like they did in like the 1800s, right? They do their farming by hand. They don't have electricity. They walk almost everywhere. Sometimes they take these little buses called Matatus. um, And, you know, they go to school, they get an education, but their life is very much constrained by um, the fact that they have so few resources, tribal societies. So these are like essentially large extended families um, that are living mostly in kind of, um, huts with sometimes grass roofs and sometimes um uh tin roofs and sort of the one really modern thing that you see ubiquitously in this part of kenya is that everybody has a cell phone kenyans love cell phones they're unbelievably cheap and they can put minutes on them very very cheaply uh at these little safari green safari comm huts that are all over the place uh in kenya
0: so as much as i've heard about um about basic income experiments, mostly through GiveDirectly, I still just find it such a a strange thing to have someone knock on your door and say, hello, I'd like to give you money every month for for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about how the people in this village were processing what was going on when GiveDirectly showed up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So they were really so they um, gift directly very smartly uh, works with these local field officers who are members of the same tribe as the villagers um, so these are like just unbelievably brilliant folks that, who gendered to come from somewhat higher income backgrounds but nevertheless were like of the same people um, in this case the tribe is called the Luo and uh, they went starting a few months before to talk to village elders and villagers basically said you know like we're here with an American nonprofit, they want to give you something with no strings attached. We promise we don't want to do anything except for collect some information. Um, and then they had a big village meeting, which is called a Barraza. And they told them that they were going to give them this money for 12 years. And people just freaked out. <laughs> like they really did. Um, and it's about 20, 20 bucks a month every month for 12 years. And what was kind of shocking to me, so um, there's a really great uh, economist who writes about scarcity named um, Sendhil Mullainathan. Nathan, wrote a really good book about s- scarcity and how scarcity is sort of taxing to the brain um, and, and makes it sometimes hard to, to make decisions and just, you know, occupies bandwidth. And what was kind of astonishing to me was that some of the families I talked with were so poor and were having such problems just, you know, Eating, right? Like getting enough calories, making sure that their kids were going to school, making sure that they had enough money to buy clean water, really, really like low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that they couldn't actually really do much long term planning. And I would say, what's going to be different in five years? And they would kind of be like, well, we hope that the roof is fixed. Um and my guess is that their life trajectories will take very different courses now that they have this money, but it was hard for some of them to, to kind of get that elevation. I think just because uh, this was so shocking and, and their lives have so been constrained by poverty for such a long time. So
2: really interesting to hear about the idea of the groundwork that needed to be laid in advance of actually providing these payments in order, in order to get people to even be willing to entertain the idea. I wonder if there's analogies around that between what happened or is happening in the village there and the situation in the United States as far as people grappling with this idea. So I'd be curious, either on that front or more generally, if there were any thoughts that occurred to you about how things there might actually translate to the United States.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do think that there is something to this kind of like manna from heaven. So you hear a lot of resistance in the idea um, in the United States to this idea that anybody would be getting something for nothing. Right. So most recently, you've seen a lot of opposition and and frankly, racist opposition um, to Medicaid is feeling, well, you know, these really poor folks who don't even bother working or getting this insurance for free, whereas I you know, work really hard and pay my taxes and I don't get anything for free. And like, there's all sorts of economic ways to rebut this, but nevertheless, you have this kind of very emotional and, again, in the United States, pretty racially coded feeling like, you know, I don't want somebody getting something that I'm not. And I think that this is why you um, don't have opposition to programs that really do go to almost everybody, like Social Security, as opposed to a program like Medicaid, which is means-tested, and, and for poor folks and disabled folks, um, primarily, and so um, I think there's something to that, right? Like, you know, these villagers, in this case, Give Directly was giving this money to this entire village. And they said that it was a lot easier to tell people um, when they weren't kind of picking and choosing winners. Um, and, and some of the resistance to Give Directly, or the disbelief, um, and the villagers were very, they were like, who are these crazy mzung, like, mzungus, these crazy white people? Um, the skepticism that anybody would want to give you something without expecting something in return, <laughs> which is really, really fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, that's the, the, one of the obviously like the most basic radical things about UBI is we have nothing where somebody just gets something as a birthright, right? Like, you know, just because you're an American, you get this. Um, I think that's such a foreign idea to, to, to Americans. And I think um, uh, probably less foreign, perhaps in, in European countries, maybe, where you have uh, just a much thicker safety net.
0: So along those lines, having seen somewhat how this plays out in, in rural Africa, even though we're only talking about $20 a month per person in that case. Do you feel like you have a better sense of what a basic income might look like in the US should that ever come to pass?
1: I mean, so I do think that there's a way in which this study um, might generate some uh, information that could be of use in the United States, despite the fact that obviously this is a massively different context and you would be implementing a UBI for really different reasons than you would be in the U.S. So um, one thing is that we don't actually, people theorize about what basic income would do to things like um, uh, inflation. We don't really know, right? Um, This is at least a very preliminary. Test of that because Give Directly is running something called a general equilibrium study. Well, they'll see, you know, if prices rise in this region, how much is that going to cut into the real benefit of the $20 a month? So that's like pretty cool. Um, but more, I think that, you know, because again, this is such a different context and done for such a different reason, the thing that this could do is just be, uh, sort of awareness raising of this as a concept. And and there'll be all of these thousands of Kenyans that you can kind of point to and say, Hey, like, this is how it changed their life. And no, they didn't spend it on booze and cigarettes and, uh, um, here they are talking about it. And I think that that's also true um, with the other experiments that are going on, right? Like Americans probably relate to Finns a little bit better than they relate to Kenyans. And they certainly are going to relate to the people from the Y Combinator study, perhaps even more so. Um, and so I think just in terms of this idea kind of breaking into more of a mainstream, I think that having all of these experiments is is so important.
2: So what has generally been the reaction to your article so far? What have you seen from from people who have read it are there things that have particularly surprised you about people's takeaways and responses?
1: Yeah. I mean, so one thing that I wish that um, had been a little bit clearer in the article is uh, that some people were kind of like, well, um, cash shouldn't be a replacement for all aid. And I actually agree with that, as you all the give directly guys, right? Like, nobody is arguing that you should be giving cash instead of like providing inoculations or vaccines or something. This is much more in terms of like, you should probably almost always. No, I mean, you can even say certainly always be giving cash instead of doing stuff like improving school buildings or giving out sports equipment or in almost all cases, giving out physical food, right, or passing out livestock. Like this is this is like the easy form of the argument. And um, there's a guy quoted in the story called Justin Sandifer, who's like, you know, the radical argument is that you should be taking these big USAID programs for like, for instance, women's education and giving them as cash. Whereas there, I think it's a little bit harder because you can't quite test that. And that, you know, gets into the realm of political economy, whereas this is just sort of just straightforward economics. Um, but got a bunch of really, really interesting responses from people, both people who were really curious about UBI and people like in some cases, a couple people who felt moved to donate, which um, I thought was really interesting. Um And, you know, and I think also uh, a couple of responses from people who just wanted to like wanted me or other journalists to follow up to say, okay, how is this place going to look different in like a year? Right. Uh, cause we just saw, I saw, I was there when people got their first payments. Um, and most of those they spent on uh, real basic needs. So like food primarily. Um, but you know, I think six months from now, maybe, um, as long as food prices don't go crazy, you know, they, they could be spending the money in, in different and more creative ways.
2: Did you get a sense from the responses, were people mostly focused on the specific Kenyan experiment and what was happening there Or were a lot of people in the headspace of like, oh, how could this happen or apply in other areas?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so the story went in the New York Times magazine It was actually in a future of work issue, which was like in some ways an awkward fit because like in Kenya, they're not so worried about robots. Um, but here, you know, part of the reason that there's been such interest um, from a lot of donors in the tech world in this, uh, in this project is just because they're interested in UBI for very different reasons um, uh, related to technological unemployment in the United States. And again, I, th- I think we're talking mostly about two really different things when you're talking about UBI here and UBI there. Um, but insofar as there are sort of threads that combine the two of them, you know, aside from things like the general equilibrium study and sort of just broader having examples of people who are receiving UBI, you know, um, if you think that robots are going to take all of our jobs, like that's going to be bad for the United States, but it's also going to be bad for a lot of middle income and lower income countries that rely on manufacturing. So like, Robots taking everybody's jobs is going to be bad for the U.S. and it's going to be terrible for Vietnam. Right. And so uh, uh, I do think that there's a a funny way in in which if you're really worried about technological unemployment, having this as kind of like an all purpose solution um, in a bunch of different contexts is not is not the craziest idea, actually.
0: And before you mentioned that people want you to go back and see what things are like in a year or so. You also went to a, a village that started receiving payments in 2013. And I think it was not every citizen there. It was, you know, selective households. Uh, and I believe you wrote that it was just visibly better off than, uh, than a, a pilot or a um, control village that did not receive any payments. Uh, could you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the cows were fatter. That was like one of the things that I noticed, right? Like, um, if you are a very low income Kenyan, you feed your people first and you don't bother buying food for livestock. Right. Um, and that could have been because there's the dog. The dog would like to be fatter. Yeah. The the dog would very much like to be fatter. Um, (laughs) so, uh, uh, yeah. So the 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 place, like, they just had more successful plantings. Uh, they were growing like mango trees and things, um, which was not true. And uh, some of the other villages, the homes were a little bit nicer. There were fewer houses with thatched roofs and more houses with tin roofs, which was a big difference. And then, um, yeah, there 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 was just like in general, it was actually pretty visible that this was just a somewhat more prosperous place.
0: And you mentioned mango trees. Would you say that the the village that re, was receiving cash was able to think more long term?
1: Certainly. And what was crazy was that the people that I talked to that had received um, Give Directly money a few years ago, their lives had really changed. So there's this one guy named Frederick who's quoted in the piece, and he had had like, some problems with alcohol abuse, and his wife had left him, and his life was kind of a disaster when Give Directly came to him. And now he's like started all of these businesses, right? Like he bought this um motorbike so he was like a taxi motorbike driver. He had started like a barber shop. He was living part- time in the coastal city of Mombasa, which takes like a bus fair to get to and is is um a higher productivity and higher wage place than the village that he was living in. So his life had changed really profoundly. and And his earnings had gone up quite a bit. He had actually kind of made this move from labor to capital, where like before he was just sort of an itinerant worker, and now he was a business owner. Um and and that was not unusual. A bunch of people said that they basically used the money to um push themselves into um higher income industries.
2: So you mentioned that there was a lot of interest in doing some sort of follow-up report on, on the village you visited. I'm curious, do you have any plans already in place to do more around basic income?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm writing a book right now about UBI. Um So steeped pretty deeply in this um, and hopefully as part of that, I'll be able to go back to Kenya at some point to check in. Um, I would love to kind of close that loop and visit the people that I visited uh, twice this past fall. But, you know, the cool thing about the book is is that I'm getting to look at all sorts of different experiments, um, hopefully taking a trip to India to talk to people about the proposal there. And I've been doing a lot of travel in the United States um, and in Europe. Uh, so hopefully going to get a really global look at this, at this really, really, really big idea.
0: (laughs) All right. Uh, so actually that's all, all we were planning on asking you, is there anything else you want to throw in there?
1: No, no, not at all. I'll I'll ask the dogs if they have anything else to add. Okay, I'm sure <laughs> they
0: do. <laughs>
1: it's um it's funny. I swear like anytime that I'm on like an important or a work call, they like start barking, which <laughs> yeah, normally they, they keep, like, Quietly, <laughs> like, they grave. You know, it's like the world's most annoying trait. Um but no, thank you so much for for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no. Thank, thank you so much for for joining us. That was Annie Lowry, writer for the Atlantic Magazine on um, the Basic Income podcast. Uh, Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review while you're there. And we'd love to expand our audience. So if you know other people who may be interested in conversations like these, please tell them to check out the Basic Income podcast. Have a great day.